This morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 22, uh, through 20, sorry. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare in de- declare it boldly as I ought to speak the word of the lord thank you derek let's pray father would you give us grace to understand this passage today Would you help us to fight well, taking up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Father. Fill out the equipment that is the armor of the Lord, that we may be able to stand as you would have us. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our children are up with us today. It's not a children's church Sunday, and when that happens, I like to have a little story right at the beginning just for the children. Children, how many of you like to play a sport or an instrument or something like that? How many of you like to do that? You, you maybe go to gymnastics class or something or tumbling. Or, okay, wonderful. Well, when I was a kid, I, I loved sports, and the sport that I loved most was baseball. Now, I played shortstop when I played on the baseball team, and when I was about, if, uh, if memory serves, I was 11, maybe 12 years old. I was playing in a baseball game, and I was at shortstop. And we were playing against a team that was really good. And their best player, the best player on their team, smashed a rocket right at me. The ball took two hops. Hop, hop. I got down to field the ground ball. Can you, can you see in your mind how a person would lean over and put their glove out to catch the ball? On the second hop, the ball hit an imperfection in the field, a pebble or a little rock or something. And you know what that ball did? It came up and it hit me square in the nose. Knocked me on my back. I couldn't play the rest of the game. My nose hurt for weeks. Something happened after I got hit in the nose with that ground ball. It came up, in fact, a couple games later. A very easy ground ball was hit to me. I went to field the ground ball. Well, just as the ball was getting to me, do you know what I did? I went like this. Why? I didn't want to get hit by the ball again. And you know what the ball did? It went right under my legs like like my legs were a wicket. The ball went shoop, straight under my legs. The most embarrassing thing that can happen for a baseball player. I was so embarrassed 
And I was embarrassed that I was afraid of the baseball. Well, later on, I went with my parents, and we went to a sporting goods store, and I saw something at the sporting goods store. I saw a helmet that had a face mask around the helmet. Can you guys envision that? Almost like a catcher's mask. And I asked my dad to buy one for me. And so for several weeks, I made my friend go to the baseball fields with me. I had a bucket of baseballs, and I would go stand at shortstop, and I would make him smack ball after ball after ball after ball at me, and I would put that helmet on with the face mask and field those ground balls and field those ground balls until I got my confidence back. And after a couple weeks of doing this, I realized something. I realized, children, the ball actually never hit me in the face mask. And suddenly I had confidence again to go play and not worry about the ball hitting me. Now, children, just like I got a lot of confidence from fielding all those ground balls with a helmet and a shield, so God wants us to have a lot of confidence in fulfilling our spiritual duties But he doesn't ask us to go out naked. He doesn't ask us to go out without protection. In fact, he gives us several items that will protect us when bad things come our way. So let's just review what we read, what we uh, covered last week, and then uh, we'll have them up here on the screen, and then we'll move forward. The Apostle Paul's been telling us, by the way, if you're visiting with us, just so you know, What we do here at Fellowship Bible Church, most usually, not all the time, but usually we work our way through books of the Bible. And we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and you've visited us today uh, on this day where we are teaching through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. And so we'll cover those two verses today. It is a Lord's Table Sunday, so we'll keep it a little bit shorter uh, so that we can observe the Lord's Table. We'll cover just those two verses, and then we'll pick up. Uh, the following verses next week and beyond. But Paul, back in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, says, finally. And what he means by that is everything he's told us in this book leading to this point in the book of Ephesians has been to prepare us to put on the armor of God, to prepare us to stand in the evil day. God says, evil times are coming, and I want you to be prepared for that. Stand firm. All that's been told to you has been a prelude to this command. And Paul's concluding theme, which we've discovered, is stand fast in God's power through prayer. Now, we haven't got to prayer yet, but that will be next week and past. And that's a major part of Paul's equipping here. Stand fast in God's power through prayer. Now, God commands us to stand our ground with the help of three pieces of armor. There's, I'm sorry, with six pieces of armor. Last week, we covered the first three, which were the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and shoes that have like spikes on them, shoes pre- prepared with the, the gospel of peace. And this week, the Apostle Paul has three more, and we're going to cover those three this week. And those three things are the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. 
And it's those three items of our armor that we will cover today. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. So last week, what I did was, as we got to each one of these tools, I would tell you about what the Roman would think of when they heard of these sorts of things. What I'm going to do this week is I'm going to cover all that at the very beginning so that you can see it as we go through. And I actually have a picture on the screen. I don't have a picture on the screen because I think it's a great picture, but because it's actually a pretty good, it gives a pretty good representation of the types of things we're talking about. Now, if you look closely, the man on the left has a big, goofy grin on his face. Okay, so I don't think that probably happened in warfare, but maybe because of his great, uh, his great shield work, he could smile knowing he wouldn't be hurt. Who knows? But this is actually pretty indicative of what Roman equipment would look like. So I want you to take a, fir- take a look first at that shield. This shield was, um, was kind of a unique Roman invention. When they first began fighting in the Roman era, they used small little circular shields, which were mainly used to parry away sword strikes. But as they began to face armies who were much more skilled at bow and arrow and missiles and javelins and so forth, they developed this shield, which is almost certainly the shield that the Apostle Paul was talking about. This particular shield was made of thick wood. They said it was thick as a man's hand. Now, I don't think it means thick this way, but thick this way. I think that's the only way it could, it could be considered. These shields weighed about 25 pounds, and they were wood, and then they'd be covered with canvas, and then on top of the canvas, goat skin. They rimmed the, sword, the, the shields with iron, um, iron uh, wrapping. They'd put the iron on it, uh, get it really hot, wrap it around the wood, and then quench it so it would shrink down and hold that shield really tight. These things, and then they, they also included a big metal centerpiece, which you can see on this fellow's sword, or on this fellow's shield right here. And that way, if a person hit them with a sword, they could put their shield up, and the shield, having that metal piece in the middle, could absorb it without shattering into bunches of pieces. Now, the thing about that shield you need to notice most substantially is its size. These shields were usually about 42 inches tall. Now, for some of you, that would only come up to, you know, wherever. But for me, being a shorty, and I'd probably come up to my shoulders. Well, the size of this shield actually became very important. And the shields were wide enough for two guys to stand behind. Okay? And so, when they were being attacked from projectiles. And again, that's what Paul's going to refer to in this passage, the flaming projectiles. When projectiles, arrows, javelins, spears were being thrown at them, the Roman military practiced a maneuver that they called the tortoise. And they would make essentially a canopy of shields, and they could all hide underneath of it And the shields were strong enough to where nothing would get through. And they would essentially let the enemy run out of ammunition. How many of you children during the men's nerf night 
ended up in the terrible predicament of running out of bullets. And the only place to get more bullets was where all the people were shooting at each other. And when you get in that position, you're basically good for nothing, right? And so they would wait until the enemy had shot all their arrows and shot all their, thrown all their javelins and spears. And they would be perfectly safe underneath that canopy. Notice also, to the helmet in this picture. Not quite as ornate as we might originally think. The idea for these helmets, actually, that I think Paul is after, is these helmets were, frankly, made to order. They didn't have a one-size-fits-all mass production of helmets. Your helmet would be custom-fitted to you. It was copper, bronze, it was steel, it had a, a leather, um, a leather, some leather webbing up underneath of it so that it would fit on your head. It usually had cheek pieces that came down and a piece that connected to the back that would protect the back of your neck. They had a spot for feathers to be on top, not for decoration or intimidation, but so that you could know, it, so that you could be identified with your fighting friends. So say you needed to be in this legion, and all of your legion was wearing red, and you found yourself inside of a bunch of green, you would know that you have gotten to the wrong place, and you could get over here and join your teammates. Okay? It was for identification, but the, the point is customization. Almost everybody had their own helmet. Because, let's face it, for heads, one size does not fit all. And so you would need something if it were going to be comfortable in battle and not shaking around and rattling around and falling down. And can, can you imagine having a sharp piece of metal fall down and hit you right on the bridge of the nose? Okay, that would, it may not ruin your life, but it would probably ruin your day. Okay, and so to prevent that, they all had unique helmets. The last thing I want you to notice is that sword. Okay, now many of you know a lot about these swords. In fact, I said to Ben Mack earlier this week, I said, yeah, I did a little bit of study on the Roman short sword. He goes, oh, yes, the gladius. And I went, yep, <laughs> the gladius. He knows the Latin word for it. Okay? There are actually many different um, types of swords. But you guys remember from history? I, I know we're kind of nerding out on the battle armor. We'll get to the Bible in just one second. This is what Paul's talking about. This is what would come to mind to a first century reader of this. Does anybody um, remember the story of Hannibal and the war elephants? and uh, how um, even though he had an awesome army, the Ro Romans beat him. Anybody remember that story vaguely? Okay, good. The war elephants were actually not what stuck. Um, those soldiers in Hannibal's army had a unique sword that the Romans had never seen before. It was about 28 inches long. It was tip. it was... Um, sharpened on the tip and sharpened on both sides, had a hand guard and a customizable hilt that your fingers would fit into so it wouldn't go flying off your hand. Think of it as like the Wii remote strap on your hand so you don't throw the thing through the television. Okay? You could swing it with relative ease, and because of the fit of the handle, the knob on the end, it would not easily come flying out of your hand. 
it was extremely durable and it was extremely versatile. Now think about it, if you had to march a thousand miles across the empire, what do you want to carry for those 1,000 miles? If you have to swing something all day long and your life depends on you swinging it, what do you want to be swinging that you think you could keep up for that amount of time? And so this sword, this particular one, the gladius, became standard usage in Rome for six centuries. They could use it uh, in a variety of different ways, and it was considered state-of-the-art technology that was essential for a Roman legionnaire to do his job. It was quite versatile. It was, uh, it was light, mobile, and extremely effective. Okay. That's enough of that picture, okay? Now let's get to Paul's explanation of the spiritual points of these things. Let's take up the shield of faith right here. Paul says, Paul says, having taken up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith. He says right here in Ephesians chapter 6. The things I want you to notice is that in taking up the shield of faith, Paul is very certain about this shield. He's very confident in its effectiveness, very confident in its use. If you'll look right here in verse 16, I want you to notice, first of all, the categoricals. He says in verse 16, in all circumstances, in all circumstances, you're never going to need, never be without your shield. Always have it with you. Take it up all the time. In every circumstance, you need to have this shield. And then I want you to know something else. He says that this shield is able to help you against all the flaming darts of the evil one. All the evil darts. There's not a thing that can come at you that your shield of faith can't protect you against. And think of the many different wiles of the devil. Think of the many different tactics he's used. Temptation, discouragement, despair, slander. He's used... Fear of the future, fear of the past. He's used your sins. He's used questions about God's word. He's used rational people. He, he's used so many different tactics, so many different ways. We haven't even seen the bottom of them. And there's not a single tactic that he can use against you that faith cannot protect you from. Never be without it. Always have it with you, for it can be all protective for you. Now, Paul says that we face imminent danger. Look at what this shield is to protect us from. If you want to translate this literally, it's literally the flaming missiles of evil, or it could also be legitimately translated the flaming missiles of the evil one. Not sure which it is. Either way, a missile was not just an arrow that had a fiery tip. This was a any thrown object. It could be a missile launched from a catapult or a trebuchet. This could be a missile thrown in the sense of a javelin. It could be a missile thrown from a spear. It could be something shot from something like a, uh, um, um, uh, like a bolt action, uh, what, whatchamacallit, I'm... 
crossbow. There are many different ways stuff can come at you. In fact, if you want to go totally lo-fi, I've seen people who take these slings and throw rocks, and they're very good at it. And a rock that size coming at you that fast will do some major damage. And so, Paul says, you've got a lot of different things coming at you, and they're all from the evil one, and you need a shield that will protect you from them all. We face imminent danger. So, here's the question. Why does Paul say that faith is the thing that will shield you? It's a great question. Why, why does Paul say that faith is the thing that will shield you? I have, I have six verses up here. You might want to write them down. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Number one, Jesus says that faith, the type that forgives other people, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, is so remarkable that you could say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted and it'll be planted over there. Jesus says in other places that faith, even the size of a grain of mustard seed, can move mountains. Jesus says that even the smallest amount of faith placed in a big God does big things. I have a pair of, of, of reference that maybe you haven't heard of much. It's Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Let me give a little background here. This verse is extremely important to the Apostle Paul. It's formative in how he thinks about faith. And if you read that story from Habakkuk, Habakkuk is an is a Jewish prophet, and he sees a problem. He says, there's evil men in the world. There's tyrants. Tyrants. Do we have any tyrants in our day and age? And these tyrants, they come and they scoop up innocent people. And when they do, they give credit to their pagan god. And Habakkuk is, is essentially saying, God, what gives? Why does that happen? And God says, I'm going to sweep them up. I'm going to have my way. I'm going to destroy them. And that promise of deliverance and judgment, it might be close. It might be far. But what I want you to do is believe me. For the just shall live by faith. You see all this stuff going on out there. Don't let your eyes deceive you. I am in control. Take what you know about me and set up your lives accordingly. The just shall live by faith. Faith looks at present difficulty. Faith looks at the big men of the world and says... You're not so big. God is. And it's him that I fear and trust and entrust myself to. Number three, John 16, 33, faith says Jesus is greater than any evil. Paul says he that is in us is greater than he that's in the world. Jesus says, I don't want you to be afraid, my little children. I've overcome the world. Okay, Jesus is in you and fighting for you. He's over you. Faith says, fire at me what you will. Jesus is bigger and stronger than that. And I'm okay. Number four, Hebrews 11.33, faith emboldens actions. Faith caused Abraham to go out and fight Chato Lamer. Faith caused David to stand up to Goliath. Faith caused 
Gideon to stand up to his horse. Faith in what God says leads people to do dramatic and big and amazing things. You can overcome the fiery darts because you're trusting what God's word says. 1 John 5.14, or I'm sorry, 1 John 5.4. John tells us faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. You want to overcome the fiery darts of evil coming your way. Put your faith and trust in the word of God. Last question. If faith is so important, if faith is what I need to overcome the fiery darts, if faith is what I need in Jesus who's superior to all this other stuff, if it's faith that I need, here's the question, how do I get it? How do you get that thing that's going to overcome the world? How do you get that thing that will protect you from the fiery darts of the evil one? How do you make it yours? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, friends, I'm going to be very transparent with you for a moment. I have to constantly tell myself this. It matters what I put into my mind and what I put into my ears. There's lots in this world that I don't need more of. But one thing that I should never have enough of is the word of Christ. And so I would really strongly encourage you to take an inventory of what you're putting into your ears and minds and hearts and ask yourself, what if I were to put This time over here and this time over here, which wins? Which has more time? Take an inventory, and I think you'll be shocked at how little the word of Christ is actually coming into your heart and mind. Tip the balance the other way. I'm not saying you can't enjoy diversions and fun and that sort of thing. By no means am I saying that. What I am saying is you should not be surprised at a lack of faith in any given situation when you've done very little to put the word of Christ into your head and heart. We need to do everything we can to get Christ in here so that we're protected out here. Fair enough? All right. The helmet of salvation. We have to hustle. The helmet and shield, there's a difference. Everybody look at your translations right here, verse 17. There's a change. The sentence ends in verse 15. I'm sorry, in verse 16, the sentence changes. And I'm in the unfortunate circumstance of having this verse be on two different pages of my Bible, so I'm going to be flipping back and forth. And take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. In our translations, there's kind of a comma, but in Greek, it's actually a whole new sentence and a whole new command. It's a command that says, receive, take this up. Paul changes the verbiage from having taken up to more of an urgent thing of receive. And I want you to notice that it's an emphatic command. There's a helmet and there's a shield. And it's almost like uh, if you could imagine uh, Jesus as a drill sergeant commanding you, go pick those things up. Take them, receive them. They're there for you. Grab them. Have them this customizable helmet that's yours. 
As for this helmet, the Lord, the Lord God, that Paul is tapping into a passage, you might want to write down this cross-reference, Isaiah 59, verses 17 through 20. And there the Lord goes out like a holy warrior, and he is wearing the helmet of salvation. And it says that he's going out to redeem his people. The Redeemer has a helmet. It's the helmet of salvation, and it's that very helmet that God is offering to you right now. It becomes your trademark, as it were. It's for protection and identification. And it can be yours. Now, there's a commentator that's actually very helpful in this. I don't usually quote my commentaries at length, but this was really good, and I couldn't think of a better way to say it. But the commentator, Frank Thielman, says this, okay? He explains it this way. The helmet of salvation, in saying that, Paul urges his readers then to receive a salvation, not because they don't already have it. Okay, you've, you, most of you in here already have salvation, and yet Paul is telling you to take up the helmet of salvation. He's telling you to take it up. Not that you don't already possess it, you do. But because although they have it, they need to appropriate it constantly in faith. In other words, you need to learn how, when to put it on and what it's for. You have it. Now you need to learn all the many uses for which it will serve and what it will protect you from. He's not encouraging you to take it up for the first time, though if you've never taken it up, he does want you to take it up for the first time. It's something that those of us who have possessed it for years need to keep remembering to pick it up and take it up and pick it up and put it on. Never leave home without it. If you want to know what that sounds like, say, Pastor, that i got to say, that's a little confusing to me. I don't know what it means to appropriate the helmet of salvation. Read Romans chapter 8. And there what Paul is doing is he's reasoning forward from the gospel. If I'm saved by faith, it must mean that God is for me. And if God is for me, then nobody can stand against me. And it must mean that God loves me. And if God loves me, it must mean that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Paul isn't commanding, he's reasoning. He's meditating forward appropriations of all the things the helmet of salvation will help you to realize that you have. Does that make sense? If you want to see what that sounds like, go check out Romans 8. Then last, we have the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the only true offensive weapon that we have. It's the sword, it's this gladius that we talked about, this short sword that's quick, sharp on both edges, pointed on the end. It can be used in a variety of tactics. It can be used to thrust, slash, push. It's extremely versatile. It's light. But the Apostle Paul says this weapon that you have, this weapon that you wield, 
made of extremely hard and durable steel. He says that it's the word of God. The word of God is the thing that will help you advance, will help you fight off the enemy. You can push back. You can fight back. Not of, not with the tactics we're accustomed to pushing back with, but with the word of God. Why does Paul say that this word is particularly useful? Well, first of all, the word is fundamental categorical truth. Jesus says, sanctify them with the word. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. And this word, according to Jesus in John 10, 35, can never be broken. And according to Jesus in Luke 21, 33, can never be lost. You have all the words that God ever wanted you to have. And it's absolutely categorical, foundational truth. You don't have to sink in the mud. You don't have to wonder if it's right. Number two, the word of God is living. It's alive. And it's powerful. It is able to make a person born a second time. Nicodemus marveled at this, and Jesus said, look, you need the Spirit to do a miracle and make you born a second time. And Nicodemus said, how can I be born? I'm old. Jesus says, well, you need a miracle. And the Word of God can work that miracle. It is that powerful. It's miraculous in its power. Number three, Paul says the Word of God this book, this book that you hold is not the work of man's hands primarily. It's actually the outbreathing of God. Theonoustos. God breathed it out. Paul says that this outbreathing of God is able to save those who hear it. And so in any conversation you have with people outside the faith of God, you need to be thinking, how can I get them, how can I get God's words into their minds in a way that they'll understand it? And that word that they hear has miraculous power to change. It has miraculous power to work and move. Now, how many of us have had this thought? Okay, th you, you can raise your hand if you want to. You know, Pastor, it's great that I have this book, A General Word from God to the World, but how much better would it be if God said something directly to me? How many of you have had that thought? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know what God would say to that? He'd say, friend, this is my personal direct word to you. Let me prove how he says that, where he says that. He says that in Romans 15, 4, that God, this is God's personal word to every reader or listener. And what God does, according to 1 Corinthians 2.10, is he uses the Spirit of God to take these words and personalize it to your heart, such that through it, God speaks directly to you. 
personal way, through his word, as the spirit applies them to your heart. Now, this was a few years ago. I take that back. It was about a year ago. I sort of struggling through an issue in my heart, not nothing to do with Fellowship Bible Church. It was strictly a Greg Baker thing. And for some time, I'd been asking God to give me wisdom on the matter, give me a word on the matter. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to think about it. I, I would say that for probably six months, I was sorting through that issue, trying to come to a conclusion. And I was back east doing our recruiting trip. And I showed up at, I, I remember in the, the morning I'd been at a church, if you forgive me for a little extended story here, I'd, in the morning I'd been at a, a church. In the afternoon, I was going to go to the church I was at when I, was, when I lived there. My former pastor was going to be speaking. And it was going to be kind of a trial and a chore to get over there, but I was like, no, I, I haven't heard him in years speak, so I'm going to go over there and listen. I showed up. Sat through the song service. Happy to be there. And suddenly, he, he opened the word. And I kid you not, I was very aware immediately that God was answering with his word that thing I'd been asking about. Now, God was so kind to answer that in a form I would recognize. I'm hearing my former pastor talk to me from the Bible. And for about 15 or 20 minutes, I sat captivated because I knew the Spirit of God is delivering this to me personally. And that's how God talks to you. Does God talk to you? Sure. Through this word. Through this word, the Spirit of God delivers this word to your heart. Last this word, how many of you, before I get to it, have ever been sad and didn't know why you were sad? How many of you have ever been emotional and didn't know why you were being emotional? How many of you have ever been angry and weren't totally sure why you were angry? Or suddenly you were filled with a sense of euphoria and you're like, where'd that come from? Your wife says to you, why are you running around the house like a madman? Anybody? Okay. It happens from time to time. You, you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know what does know? The word of God knows. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is alive and powerful and able to interpret our hitherto misunderstood themes. How could I sort through that? How could I know what I'm thinking? How could I know what my intentions are? The word of God knows. And the word of God, the sword of the spirit, can help you. Now last, in conclusion, I just have one sentence up here in conclusion. Number one, alas, these implements of warfare are taken up by frequent 
and prolonged meditation in the Word of God. Friends, we, we need to be in the Word as that will give us faith and that will remind us of our salvation. And as we meditate on the Word, you will be surprised how quickly you memorize the Word simply by meditating on the Word. And then when your friend at work or a mom on the Little League team or some situation comes up, suddenly you'll say, you know, I was reading in my Bible. It's in, it's in the book of Psalms. I, I can't recall exactly which psalm it was, but I'll get that for you. And then you essentially quote it to them. You're taking the sword of the Spirit at that moment and helping them to hear the word of God so that they might be born again. We must become very skilled in a Psalm 1 way of meditating on the word day and night. And that is the only way we will be able to take up the whole armor of God.